Galatians chapter 2, it's beginning verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among them. Uh, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically among, with him. Uh, so even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Verse 14. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force, a, force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law died, for through the law, I died so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, we ask for your help this morning to understand your word. May your spirit teach us. May we not just learn truths this morning, but may our hearts be challenged to change. May we worship May we worship the one who is the ground and the object of our faith. Your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We've been in a series on Galatians and, and uh, we'll continue. Uh, we are finishing chapter 2 this morning. But we said before a quick summary of the book would, would look like this. Verses, chapters 1 and 2, Paul rebukes the church. He defends his uh, apostleship. And he defends the gospel that he preached. Paul had been uh, accused, uh, likely, by those who claimed that he, he altered the gospel message to develop a version that would appeal to Gentiles. Now, Paul is defending that the gospel that he's preaching is actually the gospel of Christ that was revealed to him. Nothing that he made up, nothing that he, he received from, from any other person. Chapters 3 and 4... Paul gives the principles of justification. In chapters 5 and 6, he gives the privileges of justification. Last week, we looked at the first 10 verses in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul talks about justification here as the only legitimate Christian doctrine of justification. There is no other legitimate doctrine of justification. In verses 1 through 10, Paul has a, a meeting, a private meeting with some of the apostles. And he sets before them the gospel that he had been given. And he does that to see if, if they would be in agreement with him 
and take a stand against those who were not believing that gospel. Thankfully, those apostles, those church leaders did agree with him. They did take a stand. Gospel unity is derived from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we move now into verses 11 and following, we see that Paul has another meeting. The first one was in Jerusalem, and this one is in Antioch. And when Paul goes to this meeting, he finds that there's a problem. And the problem is with Peter. Again, verse 1, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch. uh, Jerusalem was a, a Jewish town. Antioch was a Gentile town. Paul says that he opposed him to his face. This is to say that that Paul confronted him directly, face to face, but he did it in front of all the people there. So his first meeting in the first part of the chapter was was a private meeting. This one's not so private. He is is directly and publicly confronting Peter. And why? Why? Because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? Look at verse 12. For before certain men, for before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, the reason that, that Paul was opposing Peter was because of Peter's hypocrisy. Now, Peter was willing to eat with the Gentiles until the circumcision party, as he calls them, showed up. And then he didn't want to be seen with them. Then he separated himself from them. He didn't want to be identified with those Gentiles anymore. The circumcision party would have disagreed with Peter. Uh, They would have held to the, the Jewish dietary restrictions that would have forbade them from eating with unclean Gentiles. But but let's just maybe ask a, a question for some of us. What, why does it really matter who he ate with? Like, what's, what, who cares who you eat with, right? Like, if you're reading the Bible as a modern-day person today, you might read that and just be like, that seems kind of innocuous. What, what's the point of uh, getting upset about, about eating with people or being afraid that someone saw you eating with someone? Who even cares? Well, Let's start with this. The circumcision party, as Paul calls them, were those who held to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Laws like restrictions on on dietary uh, eating. So who you can eat with, who you can't eat with. What's clean, what is unclean. Views on circumcision. Views on special days of festivals and, and holy days. They believed that by adhering to the law they would be made right with God. So it did matter. might seem like it doesn't matter to you and me. It mattered to them. Because what it was saying was, we can't be justified if we don't follow the law. That's how we get right with God. They believed in salvation um, through Christ plus something. And the something here was adherence to the law. The eating was a social interaction. Uh, Eating involved fellowship. Eating involved agreement. So by eating with Gentiles, there was was demonstrated a measure of agreement with them. Therefore, when they came, Peter got self-conscious and separated himself. 
But as we keep reading into verse 13, we see that Peter's hypocrisy was not kept to himself. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So Peter was acting hypocritically, and then others joined in. Oh, okay, I guess we're not supposed to do that. I guess we're not supposed to eat with the Gentiles. Even so much that Barnabas was led astray, Paul says. Uh, Barnabas was, was Paul's buddy, right? I mean, they, they'd been on the, the, the missionary circuit together. Uh, he, he knew, and yet even he was led astray. Just a side note here for us. Our sins can affect more people than we know and then we can, then we can control that be a lesson maybe for all of us this morning. But, but Peter was a hypocrite. And he was a hypocrite because he knew better. Just a couple of verses, Paul's going to say to Peter, we, we, we knew, we know this truth. And if we read back into the earlier parts of the Bible, into the book of Acts, we find out in Acts chapter 10, that's the Acts of the Apostles, this is the story after Jesus goes back to heaven, uh, what, what happens to the early church? That's the book of Acts. During that time, Peter gets a vision from God that tells him that what was once unclean is now clean. That the, the, the Gentiles aren't the outcasts anymore. They can be welcomed in through Christ, just like anyone else. Peter got that vision directly to him. Nobody, nobody else told him that. He had that interaction. And he, and he in, interacted with a Gentile named Cornelius to could confirm what God had Said so, so Peter was acting hypocritically because he knew better. He knew one thing and then he did something else. That's what hypocrisy is. When you say one thing, when you say you believe one thing and you do something else, Peter was acting like a hypocrite. And why? Verse 12 tells us because he was afraid. He drew back fearing the circumcision party. He was afraid of them, afraid of their opinion of him. The fear of man is powerful, and when it is followed, it leads nowhere good. You've probably experienced that in your life. Here is an example of Peter. As you hear this story of Peter, though, maybe your mind is starting to make some connections. Is there another experience in Peter's life that sounds similar to this? where he was revealed a truth that he said he believed. And yet, sometime later, he denied that very truth. Certainly he did, didn't he? We're speaking of his denial of Jesus being the Messiah, that of him having any part with Jesus. He knew better. He had the truth revealed, and yet in fear, he acted in unbelief. Now, we might be shocked by Peter's repeated failure here. How could he do it again? I don't know anybody who would repeat their sin again. <laughs> we ought to be careful here that most of us are more like Peter than unlike Peter here. We, too, have been guilty of reoccurring sin. This is only to say that we're not alone. It doesn't mean to minimize our sin. It doesn't mean to say that that's okay that we're repeating our sin. It means to say that we're human, and so was Peter. Peter was human. Peter's not a deity. Peter's not to be prayed to. Peter was a man, and his failure tells us that even more 
clearly. There's grace for Peter, though, and there's grace for you, and there's grace for me. But Peter was, in effect, saying by his conduct that the only way to be the people of God is to follow Jewish customs. That's the message he was sending to the Gentiles. You have to do it this way. You have to obey the law. So Paul stood up to Peter. So Paul saw what what Peter was doing. He saw that his, his conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, that it was a deviation from the gospel of grace. And so Paul opposes him. Paul saw this betrayal of the gospel and was diligent and vigilant to defend the gospel, to defend this gospel of justification by faith. So Paul says this in verse 14. When I saw the conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're you're asking them to do something that you were doing, to not do something that you were doing, or to do something that you weren't doing. A little confusing there. He was a hypocrite. He was doing it, but he didn't want them to do it. He was not acting in accordance to his, he was misaligned, if you will. Timothy Keller says it this way, Christian living is a continual realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter was guilty of being out of step with the gospel of truth. And the way he was out of step was actually nationalism, was actually racism. He was saying Judaism is right and the Gentiles are wrong. You have to be like us in order to be accepted by God. It was a a, a value on his, his race or his ethnicity over another. He saw Judaism and the adherence to the law as the grounds of acceptance. Woe to Peter and woe to anyone who would carry those ideas into the church. That we would ever in any way, shape, or form see our ethnicity or see our model or our traditions or our statuses or our politics in any way, shape, or form to be the ground of justification. It is not. The only ground of justification is faith in Christ alone. That is true for you. That is true for all people. It is only Christ that justifies. Any other, any other belief is categorically at odds with the gospel of Christ. The gospel actually tells us that we don't have to be good enough because the reality is none of us are good enough. The gospel tells us not to clean ourselves up. The gospel tells us that we're unclean. The gospel tells us that we are apart from Christ. The remedy isn't try to figure out a way to clean yourself up. The remedy for our uncleanness is in the Holy Son of God. The one who is clean. One author says this, Peter betrayed the gospel not by doctrinal erosion, which means he knew the truth, but Paul rebuked Peter openly by betraying the 
for betraying the gospel by building walls of exclusion, a stratified fellowship with some more justified than others. Peter missed the gospel. His life was not in line with the gospel. And did you know that we too can be out of step with the gospel of truth? You who claim justification, you who believe your Bible and hold it and read it and come here, you too can be out of step with the gospel. Oh, it's way easier to spot it in in Peter's life. And it's way easier to spot it in the other people's lives, maybe sitting near you or around you. But be it known that you too can be out of step with the gospel. You too have blind spots. You too have areas where you don't see things clearly. You too need, need a Paul to come into your life and confront you. You too need a community that will, will help you get on the path and stay on the path. We're not so unlike Peter. What areas of your life are out of step with the truths of the gospel this morning? Cultural acceptance is not the measure of gospel alignment. Just because the world might accept your your ideas or your life does not mean the gospel does. Your family approval or even your own conscience are not the measurements of gospel alignment. The measurement of alignment is the gospel. Is your life in alignment with the very words of God? If not, what what needs to change? This morning, this moment, what needs to change? If you're a Christian this morning, you probably know that very quickly as I say that. Even in your mind right now, you know the thing, you know the area, you know the issue that needs to change. And the invitation today is to realign your life with, with Jesus. To be convicted by the Spirit of God, ask for the grace of God to align your life with the Word of God. And you can do that even right now as you sit here this morning. As you sit here this morning, you cry out to the Lord and ask for forgiveness of your sin. Ask for grace to to forsake that sin and follow in obedience right now. There's no time like right now. Come, receive the welcome of Jesus. Secondly, justification is by faith. Paul goes on to explain the gospel. Give this gospel explanation. And the first part of that is that justification does not include works of the law. Now, Paul continues his address here, admonishing Peter. Now, some of your Bibles, if you look at the end of verse 14, the quotation ends. Go ahead, look at it. Some of your Bibles, the quotation ends. Some of your Bibles, the quotation might move all the way down to verse 17 or verse 18 or verse 21 even. In the original language, there's no indication of where those quotation marks should go. So translators had to make a decision. So in a Bible like mine, it's at the end of verse 14. If you have an NIV Bible, it probably goes all the way to 21. I actually think that it should go all the way to 21. I think due to the, the flow of, of the content and what Paul is saying, so what, what's, what's the point of me bringing up quotation marks this morning? Uh, the point is, is this, is that all of this is directed to Peter. Paul is continuing to oppose Peter. He's continuing to explain to Peter and, and re-explain to Peter uh, the gospel of justification by faith alone. When you get to chapter 3, there's a seems like there's a good transition 
where Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians. It seems to be a transition from what he was saying. So we continue this flow into verses 15 and following. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. We ourselves are Jews by birth. It's Paul and Peter, not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is justified by works of the law, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I want to invite you not to check out on me right now, okay? I've used the word justified, justification, many times already this morning. I've used it many times in weeks gone by. And there might be a tendency to think to yourself, I think I already heard that. Uh, once, twice, three times, right? Uh, however, let me, let me just give you an invitation here. Uh, the Apostle Peter, okay, the Apostle Peter, that means he was with Jesus, he lived with Jesus, he saw the risen Jesus, he had a vision concerning this very issue of what is justification. He needed some additional help on justification. So, I think it's fair to say that, that we all can sit with this again, right? And we can hear Paul's teaching on this again. Martin Luther said that this is a, a principal article of the Christian doctrine, that, that we should know it and that we should teach it to others. And in his direct quoting here, beat it into their heads continually. So that sounds about right. Um, so, I don't know, prepare for a beating? I'm not, sure. I'm not sure if that's appropriate to say. But let's go on to verse 15. We ourselves are Jews, that's Paul and Peter, by birth, not Gentile sinners. Saying Gentile sinners is just a way of saying anybody not living under the law would be a sinner. That's how the Jews would have understood that. Um, but even they knew, verses 15, that, that their obedience could not save them into verse 16. And the works of the law, that is acts done in, in, um, in obedience to the sum of the Old Testament commandments. Okay, so when we say the law, what we mean is all the commandments of the Old Testament. That's what's being said there. So works of the law, doing the commands of the Old Testament. So uh, those works uh, could not save them. They knew that. They knew that they could not be justified by doing works of the law. Now, I just summarized very, very briefly the works of the law, but John Stott has this section in his commentary about the works of the law. And I want to read it to you. I know sometimes reading can be hard, but I'm listening to someone read. I listen to my kids read, and I almost fall asleep. So um, try not to fall asleep. Okay, so here it is. John Stott is giving the position of what works of the law, justification by works of the law, would mean. What does that mean? He says, their position was this. The only way to be justified is sheer hard work. You have to toil at it. You work and have to do, uh, the work you have to do is the works of the law. That is, you must do everything the law commands, everything the law commands, and refrain from everything the law forbids. He continues, supremely, the Jews and the Judaizers would go on and they would say this. This means that we must keep the Ten Commandments. We must love and serve the living God. We must 
uh, have no other gods or God substitutes. We must have reverence for his name and his day, honor our parents. We must avoid adultery and murder and theft. We must bear, never bear false witness against your neighbor, nor covet anything that is his. But still, they have not finished. In addition to the moral law is the ceremonial law, which must be observed. You must be circumcised and join a Jewish church. You must take your religion seriously, searching the scriptures in private, attending services in public. You must fast and pray and give alms. And if you do all these things and do not fail in any particular, you will make the grade and God will accept you and you will be justified by the works of the law. You know what I say to that? Good luck, Chuck. No way. That's not happening. If you, if you fail in one way, you failed in all the ways, right? So you read that, and anybody could look at that and be like, I, I don't even get past the first part of that. Right? And neither do you. You must keep the Ten Commandments to love and serve the living God. How many times have you not loved God? How many times have you not served God? How many times have you put something other than God in front of God? Fail. Strike. One strike and you're out. You cannot be justified by works of the law for multiple reasons. One is that you can never do it is the first one. This is a lie. Works of the law is a lie. That's not what the law was intended to do. That's not the point of the law. It could have never been achieved. That was the point of the law. To tell you that you needed help. To show you that you, you can't work your way there. It's a lie from the father of lies. No one could ever make themselves righteous. Justification, being declared righteous, is by faith alone. In Christ alone, period. This is what makes the gospel good news. We don't just say it's good news just because that's the literal translation of gospel. We say it's good news because it is. What's the alternative? If works of the law is the alternative to the gospel of justification by faith, that is not good news for you. That is a death sentence for you. And millions of people are on that. It is a long march off a cliff. It's a delusion. If you think, friend, if you think that your works are going to outweigh your bad works, let me pop the balloon this morning for you. It's not going to happen. The next time you hear someone say that, help them. Give them the good news that that is not the ratio that God is looking at. The scales of justice are not your good works and your bad works. That's not it. It's the work of Christ that matters. That's what makes us acceptable before, before the Lord. Works-based salvation is no gospel. It is a non-gospel. There is no salvation in your works. Justification this word is a legal term. It's the exact opposite of condemnation. So to be condemned is to be guilty, to be declared guilty. To be justified is to be declared 
not guilty, or innocent. John Stott says this, which I found so beautiful and helpful. Justification is God's acts of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning and acquitting, which is great, but accepting him and creating him as righteous. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just pardoning and acquitting. It's not just getting rid of the, the problem. It's not just getting rid of our sin. That's a problem. It's not just that. It's welcoming us in. It's declaring us righteous in the eyes of God. It's not what we do for God that makes us acceptable by God. That's Paul's continued point. It is in the work of Christ. God is righteous. You and I are not righteous. That is the human condition. That is the situation. That's what makes justification by faith necessary. Because you can't get to God on your own. It is by faith in Christ, that is his life, his death, his burial, that we are declared righteous. Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham. It says that Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Justification. Faith. Righteousness. Justification. The gospel is scandalous because the unrighteous, the sinner, the prodigal, the failures are welcomed in. And we're welcomed in not as we are. That's not how we're welcomed in. We're welcomed in as Jesus is. Sometimes we say to people, come as you are. And yeah, come as you are. Be it known, you are not accepted as you are. God does not accept you as you are. (laughs) You know that, right? God does not accept us because in his eyes, we we are rebels. The only way we get acceptance from God is through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is our only hope. Quickly, verses 17 through 21. Quickly, you like that? Justification by faith brings life through dying to the law. Justification brings life. Let me just summarize this with a quotation from a a commentator, verses 17 and 18. We won't take time to read it this morning again. If someone who knows they are justified by faith sins, is it because justification by faith in Christ promotes sin? Not at all. But if someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on sinning, It makes the same sinful lifestyle, rebuilding uh, the sinfulness that that Christ came to or died to destroy the penalty for, and they make no effort to change, then it proves that that person never really grasped the gospel at all, but was just looking for an excuse to live a disobedient life. If you think somehow that coming to Christ, your sins are forgiven, that means you can do whatever you want, you misunderstand the gospel. That is not what Paul was teaching. Paul is not advocating for some sort of licensure to live however you want, somehow gratifying your flesh in this, this idea of the gospel. If He goes on in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I go back under the law 
right? So they were talking about the law in, in faith. He would prove himself uh, that, that he was a sinner. The law shows us that we're a sinner, that, that we're condemned. That's the purpose of the law. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. I died to the law as my Savior, Paul is saying, so that now I can live to God, who is my Savior. Then the famous words of, of verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's former life has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It's put to death. The former life is put to death. It's no longer I who live. Christ now is, is directing his life. And the life I now live, in contrast to the old life, this new life is enabled by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ com- contrasted to works of the law. That's what Paul's doing. Christ is the object. He is the ground of our justification. And I might add, he's the ground of our sanctification as well. You don't get saved by grace and then go on and try to live for God by yourself. No, you're saved by God's grace through the work of Christ, and you're enabled to follow God by grace, enabled by his own spirit. Verse 20 is a description of the consequences of the crucifixion, meaning it's not only an event. That's not all that the crucifixion is. It's not something we just believe in. It's an event that we share, that we're united together with Christ in. That as Christ died, we die. Our former life dies. That might sound gross to you or or mortifying to you, but but that's the point. The point is the former life is, is done, that there is a change. And for the one who is in Christ, there's this definitive change that crucifixion brings. You cannot be the same after crucifixion. That's true physically and that's true spiritually. There's no return. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is what Paul did. This is what Christ did for Paul. And look at verse 20 with me again, quickly. He makes it personal in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. As you read it this morning, Christian, that's you. <laughs> lives in you. Christ lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. He loved you. Sometimes we might not feel loved in this world. Maybe there's times in our life we feel alone. Maybe sometimes we feel rejected. Read Galatians 2.20. To yourself again, who loved me and he showed his love for me by giving himself for me. It's one thing to say to someone that, that you love them. It's a far different thing to show them that you love them. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The accusation was that Paul was preaching some, some sort of other gospel that was nullifying what, what God was, was doing, changing, changing the gospel. And Paul's making it clear, I'm not, nullifying, I'm not nullifying the gospel. That is not at all what I am doing. 
If the works of the law justify, then the work of Christ is unnecessary. And if the work of Christ is unnecessary, that actually means that grace is unnecessary. So Paul wasn't the one who's nullifying grace. Works of the law nullify grace. Thinking that you can do it without God is nullifying the grace of God and rendering the death of Christ unnecessary. But of course, his death was necessary. And without it, you and I are hopeless. We're hopeless to meet the standard that is required. Therefore, it is what we stand on this day. Christ had to die. He had to die. There was no other option. We're going to talk about more about that tonight. Peter's hypocrisy was a nullification of the grace of God, not Paul's gospel. But like Peter, we too know the gospel. But like Peter too, we often live out of step with the gospel. So in what ways are you living out of step with the gospel this morning? And it's no small thing. It's no small thing to live out out of step with the gospel. It leads to nowhere good and helps no one. God forbid it. Secondly, if you profess to know and believe the gospel this morning, how are you living a crucified life? Paul says, my life's changed. The life I now live, I live by faith in in, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How, How is your life giving evidence that it's been crucified? Meaning, could someone see something different before you've professed Christ to now? Is there any evidence of such a crucifixion happening in your life? The old things being put away and the new things coming? That's not something we manufacture. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. So it's not to say, go out and try to be more crucified. No, it's saying, how has God done that in your life? And if there is no evidence of that, then that might tell us something else, wouldn't it? Maybe you've yet yet to come to Christ. Maybe you've yet to surrender to Christ. Maybe you've yet to see Jesus as the only way to the Father. Would you come today? Would you come to the Father today through the Son, repenting of your sin and believing on Him as your Savior? Let's pray. Father, we believe that justification is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Father, I pray our response this morning will demonstrate that. That where there is sin in our life, that we would repent and turn. Where there is unbelief, that you would give us faith to believe. For those who are here today who don't know Christ, God, I pray that the Spirit of God would convict them as you convicted the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, as you convicted me in a bedroom in Western Maryland many years ago, God, would you convict them? Would you draw us to yourself for your glory? We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.